we realized this is actually a fundamentally hard data problem. This is a, this is a problem that no one has really solved yet globally. We don't want to just solve a small local problem. We want to try and solve the global problem from day one. This is The Raise, where we take you behind the scenes into the capital raising journeys of startup founders. Some you may have heard of, others you need to hear about, and all of whom have been through it to close a raise. On the show, you'll learn how founders make the difficult decisions. Whether you're a founder yourself or you're simply interested in the fast-moving, innovative world of startups, this show is for you. I'm your host, Mylin Dang. I'm managing director of capital raising law firm, Metis Law. For over a decade, I've worked with founders to raise capital so they can build businesses that make a lasting impact. Hello, hello, founders and friends. Today on The Raise, I'm chatting to Levi Fawcett. Levi is the co-founder and CEO of Partly. Partly is a Christchurch-based global company that is building a platform to make it simple for buyers to find the right parts for their vehicles. Levi grew up on a farm where, from a very young age, he got his hands dirty digging holes, tinkering with go-karts, and even helping build the family home. This early exposure to problem solving led him to entrepreneurship, where he started two profitable companies before working in the space industry and eventually co-founding Partly. In this episode, Levi shares the path that led him and his co-founders to find a problem and opportunity that is so big it led to a $1.2 million pre-seed round despite having no pitch deck, no connections and hardly any revenue. The milestones they hit to achieve a $108 million valuation in their Series A capital raise, making it the largest in New Zealand history, and the questions he asked other founders when he was vetting investors for their cap raise. This podcast is brought to you by Termsheet Guru. Raise capital successfully and faster with Termsheet Guru so your startup can make an impact. If you'd like to learn how to raise capital like a guru, check out one of our free capital raising webinars. Head to termsheet.guru. That's T-E-R-M-S-H-E-E-T dot G-U-R-U. Now, let's dive in. Levi, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. What's your elevator pitch for your company, Partly? Partly make it really easy for buyers to find the right parts. What's your big, hairy and audacious goal for Partly? Structuring and standardizing the world's parts and the world's vehicles at 150 million parts, 20 million different vehicle configurations, uh, and then building all the tooling to make it possible for part manufacturers, suppliers to structure and standardize all this data so that buyers could easily find the right parts. Let's start at the top. You're the oldest of nine children. I come from a very small family. I've only got one younger brother. What is life like? Well, it's probably not as different as you would expect. I think once you get past about four, it it doesn't get any harder. It's just more more people running around. You start to forget people's names. (laughs) It's certainly chaotic. My mother was a very patient woman. (laughs) She dealt with a a lot. To highlight some of the differences, from a very young age, we got to experience what it's like seeing kids grow up, understanding all the different phases, kind of taking responsibility for younger brothers and sisters. They're very different, but I I look back on it fondly. And what's the age difference between yourself and your youngest sibling? Youngest biological is 12 but youngest adopted is 25 years. 
And you grew up on a farm. What do you remember of life growing up on a farm? Great. I, I, I loved it. I spent a lot of my childhood digging digging holes. <laughs> it sounds, sounds bizarre, but I, I, I did that a lot. Baling hay, you know, hay season where we'd go and pick up bales with a, with a tractor. Those sorts of things are, are great memories. I, I, I really enjoyed it. We had a workshop, so I'd fix things, build go-karts. Dad built our house, and so I sort of went through five, six years building the house. It certainly set me up well from a, a practical standpoint. Uh, re- really good fundamental foundations, I think. After you graduated from high school, you went to the University of Canterbury to study mechatronics, robotics, and automation engineering. What interested you in this degree? I, I've always loved solving problems, whether that's fixing something or just figuring out how, how something works. During my teen years, I spent a lot of time writing code, so I kind of taught myself how to program figured out how to fix basic electronics. And I built a lot of go-karts. I fixed cars. I had a little business fixing motorcycles and cars and stuff when I was sort of my early teens. For I kind of had electronics, software, and mechanical as, as things I was interested in anyway. And so mechatronics is just a perfect combination of all of those things. And then while you were at university, you also started two businesses, Comet Industries and All Goods. Can you tell our audience a little bit about Comet Industries? Comet Industries built balustrades for high-end houses. So I came up with a relatively unique aluminium extrusion-based technique for more or $2 million-plus houses. It was this kind of screw-together system that we could build for really custom decks. Um, we we could build it for about $130 a metre, and we could sell it for about $700 a metre. So it, was just very, it actually made a lot of money. Very, very profitable business, but very traditional. And how did you come up with the idea for that business? I had a, a friend who worked as a builder. He just described the problem. Weirdly enough, when I was at uni, I didn't think I'd be very employable, just given the, the way that I was. I was I was doing university for the sake of learning, not for, for a job afterwards. And so I always knew I needed to figure out how to make my own money. You know, the more I, I thought about this, the concept that this my friend had told me about, the more I realized that maybe there was some good money to be made in it. And so, yeah, it was purely based on that. Ran, ran, ran the numbers came up with some designs and realized that, yeah, it was, it was a good idea. And how did you exit from that company? I didn't really exit, I guess. Uh, we made about $100,000 in profit the first year, mostly just myself, but it was too much work. I was spending 60, 70 hours a week on that and then doing uni on top of it. It was a huge amount of grunt work. Yeah, I, I kind of thought, yeah, I could do this, but it's not going to be this wildly successful business. So I, uh, I moved on to the next business. What about All Goods? Can you tell us a little bit about that business? The concept there was to bring SMBs together or, or build a, a common platform for SMBs to help them sell their parts online. So you kind of bring all the data together into one place and then help them sell. Now, that turned into a marketplace because we had a lot of SMBs data. Ultimately, being a marketplace competing with a network effect is a very bad idea, as, as we learned in that process. We grew that to what I would consider a moderately successful business. We had just over a thousand business customers, four hundred thousand monthly active users. I funded most of it off the back of the previous businesses, uh, and that actually ran right the way through uni. Did you exit from that business? So again, we didn't exit. All Goods was a much harder decision because at the time it was a bigger business. There was eight, so me and seven others. However, it was off the back of All Goods that we kind of discovered partly the. The business we now have, the, the deeper we dug, the more we realized that selling all goods, where realistically we weren't going we to get more than about $2 million for it, we'd, we'd be locked in for three years. And so we just decided the opportunity cost, $2 million versus being locked in for three years, 
while it wasn't worth it. Um, so again, we didn't sell it. We, uh, we just slowly wound it down. And then in 2016, despite you saying that you didn't think you were employable, you ended up working for Rocket Labs. You were there as a guidance, navigation and control engineer. Firstly, what does Rocket Lab do? Rocket Lab at the time called themselves the Uber for space. So they're a small launch vehicle provider putting satellites up to maybe 150 kgs into low Earth orbit. The idea behind it was there's a, there's a lot of pent-up demand for these smaller microsats, cubesats. They, they weren't making it to space purely because they, there was no launch availability. Yeah, at the time, there was only one private company that made it to space. That was SpaceX. Rocket Lab was the second private company to make it to space. So when I joined, that was all it did. Uh, I mean, there was, there'd been no, no orbital launches at all. We're at the phase where we're just starting to fire engines. Amazing. And what did you do as a guidance navigation control engineer? I was yeah part of the, the guidance navigation control team. So I, I was focused on what's called hardware in the loop. Essentially a, a full like hardware rocket with all of the avionics, all the components, all of the thrust vector control systems, flight computer, everything you have in a real rocket except for the mechanical parts and real engines, all built as a simulation. We then had uh, these big, big computers that plugged into it and we would simulate the inputs and outputs for the rocket. So we could kind of trick the rocket into thinking it was flying to orbit. You could trick it into thinking there was pressure in the engines. You would tell the rocket to, to start an engine that would send a signal back to our simulation. We would then say, well, the engine's starting, then we need to simulate this pressure on the engine side. You could kind of take that concept and scale it up to the point where we were taking a full rocket with no, no test systems at like if the rocket thought it was a real rocket there was no difference between that rocket and the real rocket minus the the physical parts and we could fly to orbit so yeah so that, that was my role for most of my time at rocket lab was responsible for running that uh, that involved testing all of the code kind of doing all of the final code approvals code checks before launch and then also i was very involved in, in actually launching the rocket uh, and, and all the tests that sounds very cool very sci-fi what was the venus project uh, Peter Beck, Rocket Lab CEO, was always interested in, in, in Venus and just understanding if there was life on Venus. Yeah, the Venus project was taking a spacecraft and just flying it into the planet. There's a bunch of sensors on board and, uh, and tracking those sensors on the way down. So when, when is there going to be human accommodation on Venus? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Let's move on to partly. And you sort of touched on it slightly. How did you come up with the idea for Partly? When I was younger, I spent a lot of time working on cars. I fixed cars for locals in the neighborhood, fixed my own cars, friends' cars, and even kind of worked doing this slain professionally sort of around engine reconditioning. It's a problem that I was always aware of. Everyone in the industry knew finding parts for a certain car, particularly in New Zealand, is really, really hard. And the, the smaller you get and the more, the, the more wide-reaching the work that you do is, the harder this problem gets. That was the foundations, I think. Moving through to, to Rocket Lab, I spent a bit of time understanding core systems at Rocket Lab, how all the parts assemblies fit together. There were some um, mission control systems that we, that we built for kind of um, uh, auditing for NASA or for the US government, understanding parts. Uh, and then finally, all goods, nearly a quarter of our customers sold car parts. And they were constantly complaining about this. They couldn't tell customers which parts to buy. Buyers were saying, does this fit? Is this going to fit? It was this massive problem 
that got more and more obvious the deeper we got into orchids. And then on top of that, there were some really weird numbers. We found that a big chunk of our orders uh, on all goods were coming from outside of New Zealand in the in the parts and accessories category. So it was like 70% versus 5 to 10% for other categories. So it's just, it was really different. We realized, well, this is actually a fundamentally hard data problem. This is a, this is a problem that no one has really solved yet globally. And it was kind of, it was actually that, just thinking through that problem, digging into it deeper and tying it back to my previous experience that let us start partly and say, look, we don't want to just solve a small local problem. We want to try and solve the global problem from day one. We'll take longer to do it when we'll raise venture capital, which is something we hadn't done before, but we'll focus on solving the really hard global problem. A tech startup is a minimum five, sometimes up to 10-year commitment. Why was this a problem and an issue that you personally wanted to solve and commit the next 10 years of your life potentially to? Yeah, great great question. And, and that was something we were very intentional about. We actually said, back of all goods, do we want to spend the next 10 years doing this? Do we want to do our life's work, you know, a very important phase of our lives, building out all goods? And the answer was no, but we did want to do it with Partly. The reason we wanted to do this is, A, it was, a, it was an industry and a problem I was close to. Number two, as I said right at the start, I love solving hard problems. And this is the hardest problem I, I, I knew of, even relative to, to rockets. It's a very, very difficult problem. And so you can kind of map out the next 10 years and say, partly operating in a 1.9 trillion dollar industry. So there's 1.9 trillion USD spent every year just on car parts. It's a, it's a really weird underserved industry. Solving this problem would represent a real base shift in the industry. And so when I think what does the next 10 years look like, it's very exciting because we can see partly having this massive impact in the industry as a whole, really driving this paradigm shift in terms of how the industry operates and, and building a business that a, a real world-class business, the, the, the potential there, particularly in the, ten, in the next 10 years, we, we could be one of the largest companies in the world from, from first principles, dependent on execution, you know, huge amount of risk. The odds of getting there are, are statistically low, but you can say from first principles, it's, it is possible. Are these parts in the second-hand market or are you targeting new builds as well? We sit across all different part verticals where you've got your used, you've got your aftermarket, you've got your OEM. Sitting across all three was extremely intentional because that's what matters to the buyer or whoever's fitting the parts. We would say we're very buyer obsessed. Most of our downstream decisions are all based on what we think are best for buyers. Uh, and as a result, you just have to build your infrastructure to handle all of them. Otherwise, it's not, it's not the great buyer experience that it needs to be. So yeah, we, uh, we operate across a very broad spectrum of car parts. And who are your buyers? Are they businesses or are they consumers or both? We mostly focus on consumers. However, just to be clear here, partly operate as, as infrastructure. So our bigger customers would be manufacturers. We power eBay in a lot of countries. We power the United Nations. They, you know, they're kind of larger businesses where they deal with a lot of parts. As a result, our customers are whoever, whoever their customers are. That is usually end consumers anyone fixing their own car, but there's a growing number of, uh, of B2B buyers as well. And do you have any competitors out there? To date, there's no one directly doing what we do. In terms of direct competitors, we are, we are very unique today. However, there are competitors in the US, there are competitors in Europe that are doing various things. Levi, you have two co-founders, Tony Austin and Nathan Taylor. How did you meet them? Nathan and I have known 
since I was a child, five. So uh, we uh, we kind of grew, grew up together. He went off, spent five years overseas, came back to uni. At the end of uni, I said, look, do you want to come join? Back in, in the All Goods days, we had some of the co-founders at, at All Goods. And he joined. Tony ran uh, Amazon. He, he ran Amazon in Australia. Prior to that, he built out the past accessories business for eBay uh, and then moved to Amazon and kind of built the business case, launched Amazon's past accessories business in, in Europe. So he was kind of the the world expert on marketplaces, parts. I actually arbitrarily reached out to him on LinkedIn a few years back. We started talking. He came on as an advisor for a bit over a year, got more and more invested in the business. This is something that he's been very passionate about. He was involved very early in, in part of this journey. I love both of the stories about you and Nathan. I've got, I've got a five-year-old. I'm just wondering which of her friends will she start a business with in 20 years' time? <laughs> <laughs> Firstly, with Tony Austin, I love that story how you reached out to him. Can you sort of walk me through what that conversation was like to reach out to someone who you know is great in the industry and to invite them to become an advisor? The story is actually slightly weirder than that. So the full story here is that I did an interview on Radio New Zealand with the new CEO of Trade Me at the time, where we were still quite related to all goods. And Tony was, happened to be listening to the podcast and followed our, our LinkedIn page. That was, that, was a, that was an actual story. So I um, followed the page, reached out to him. But the conversation is very straightforward. Essentially, hey, you've got a, a, a super exciting background. I, I'm very impressed. Would I, I'd love to you know, have a chat for 30 minutes and, and pick your brains on these things. You know, he, he got back to me straight away. He said, yes, let's, let's have a chat. Had the first call. Obviously, he was somewhat interested or excited about what we were doing. On that first call, what was the conversation about? Uh, it was about automotive in general. And so I asked him some very pointed questions about automotive at Amazon. He very correctly didn't give me too much information. Then delved into his background, tried to understand his thinking on things, his perspective, why he thought automotive was the parts the way that it was based on his, his history, his background, uh, why he moved from New Zealand to Europe. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a very wide-reaching conversation, but very focused on the state of the industry. Clearly, it was something he cared about as well. And then how did that ultimately lead to him becoming an advisor? I just kept asking him questions and calling him, and eventually he said, Look, I'm giving you a lot of advice. Can we formalize right. this? <laughs> <laughs> Tip for other startup founders. <laughs> what about Nathan Taylor? How did you did you keep in contact with him after all those years? And and why did you specifically reform that relationship with him? Nathan's an exceptional operator, which is which is different to me as an FYI. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm very, very strategic. Uh, think through things from first principles, really focus on the long game, but I can only execute a fixed number of things in parallel. Whether he's just, he just, he just gets a lot done. We did stay in contact most of the time he was away, but we both went to, you know, we went to the same uni at the same time. And so that was where we got back in contact. We ended up flatting together. By the time we still, we started All Goods, which is where he was first involved. It was pretty clear that he was people I knew when it came to executing. And how many people in the Partly team today? There are just under 60 of us now. I think there's 58 at the moment with just on 40 here in Christchurch and, and then 18 or so remote. We've got a team, a few handful of teams across Europe. 
Levi, I'd like to talk to you about your capital raising journey. At the end of 2020, partly raised 1.2 US million in pre-seed round. Was that an equity round? Um, yes, all of our rounds have been priced rounds, yeah. And did you have lead? Yes, so Black, Blackbird Ventures led our, our pre-seed round. They led our seed round as well. How did you meet them? Was there a particular person that you knew there? Our, our pre-seed fundraise was actually quite bizarre. We, we didn't have a pitch deck. We never actually formally pitched. There was a practice pitch session that was organised. That was actually the first time I'd pitched partly. So we thought, oh, well, we'll, we'll give it a go. Did the practice pitch off the back of that. Blackbird and uh, Hill Ference, another fund, New Zealand fund, got in contact afterwards. Both of them gave us term sheets uh, and we just went with, uh, with Blackbird. Was the practice pitch at an event that Blackbird had organised? No, uh, it, was, uh, it was just remote on, on Zoom. Were you pre-revenue at that point? Uh, absolutely. I was going to ask what was the most challenging aspect of the cap raise, but it sounded like it was pretty easy. <laughs> I haven't heard many other stories that, that align with this. We undervalued ourselves a lot because we didn't have much revenue. Our, our, the plan was to, to reach a certain revenue number and then go and raise. Obviously, we'd, uh, we'd got far enough. That first pitch was, was good enough. In December 2022, you raised 37 million New Zealand, 21 million US, at a valuation of 180 million. How were you able to achieve this high valuation? We'd grown quite quickly and we do have quite strong fundamentals. I guess some of the key things that were backing that up is we'd gone from cup two million in, in gross merchandise value in, in, in GMV to a bit over a hundred million in GMV. Our revenue had sort of seven X across that time. We'd signed key customers like the UN, uh, like the biggest marketplace in Poland, Portugal, Romania, Alex. We'd signed eBay. We had really good numbers. Now you're still correct in saying the revenue multiple we got off the back of that was very good. However, we had some other really large contracts in the pipeline. We had very clear path to very substantial revenue numbers. And most importantly, the investors understood how hard the problem we were solving was. We were able to articulate that. All the background research they did back, backed up what we'd said. And so they could kind of see that we've solved these really fundamentally hard problems. It took us a while to get there. The first 18 months, year and a half, we didn't have much revenue. But once we'd overcome most of those big hurdles, the last 12 months had really started to go exponential. So I think it was a, a combination of just genuinely strong business fundamentals. The fact that we were solving really hard problems in a very, very large industry. I think the ambition and caliber of our team has helped. It's a seriously exceptional team. And I think that, that showed as well. So we, we were kind of the, had the right growth metrics we were clearly the right people when identified a, a massive opportunity. You took on VCs quite early at the pre-seed round. Did you do much research or give much thought to the structure of your cap table at, at the pre-seed round? Yes, we did. Yes. So we've had some good advisors. So Peter Beck was involved very early. He was involved pre-seed as well. I got a lot of his advice before taking on any investors. There were, there, and there were a handful of other key people, obviously the Figma CEO, uh, Dylan Field, the, the Notion founder CEO, uh, Akshay. So th these were some key people that I've leveraged across, across our journey just to, just to help see around corners and help predict the future. So we did a lot of research into Blackbird before we went with Blackbird. We took a lot of valuation actually to go with them because we felt that it was the right decision in the long run. You know, we intentionally did these price rounds. We did 
20% dilution. Yeah, overall, it's a it's a VC funded route that was very very intentional. We had to do that, and we've given up some equity to do that. But we've kind of done it in the best way possible, and a lot of that was off the back of, of a lot of good advice. What the type of investors were you looking for in the Series A? We were looking for European investors since our growth in in Europe, not not the US. We were looking for investors that could connect us with a lot of other businesses. We were looking for investors that could help us as we move towards our Series B, you know, in a couple of years, who we felt were going to be great partners for us, both strategically and also understanding the stage of business we were at. We wanted a fund that I guess you would, in a, in a slightly cliche way, you'd say is founder friendly. <laughs> in other words, is going to going to back us all the way through. That ended up being what we landed for. What did you do to vet the investors? I only did one thing really, and that was call a lot of other founders. Founders that had taken an investment from the fund. I would explicitly ask for founders where the deal had gone wrong, where they'd replaced the CEO or they'd had to step in and do something kind of extreme. Did you ask for that list from the investors themselves or you did research to find this information? I did both. I back-channeled and I'd asked them direct. I'd say, can you give me the name of someone who where the deal didn't go well? Knowing, knowing that you're going to get the more positive bad case, but it was still helpful. And honestly, some, some founders would say, hey, you know, I'm quite friendly with the investor, but let me tell you exactly the state of things. Honestly, that was, that was where most of the research came from, other than all of the really high-level simple things. What's the investment thesis? What does the partner structure look like? You know, what other deals have they run? What's their reputation like? For startup founders generally, it's important for them to build their network of prospective investors as early as possible. Looking back at your cap table now, how much pre-investment investor dating did you get involved in to build your network? Our pre-seed round was quite bizarre. We hadn't done anything prior to that. We had no connections, no investors. You know, Peter Beck and a handful of these other really influential people that I, that I, I knew from the Rocket Lab days. After that, we almost immediately realized how important these relationships were. And so right back at the pre-seed stage, we started building relationships. So actually, Square Peg, who came in at our Series A, Octopus, who led the Series A, we'd known them probably since within 12 months of founding the company. We probably had 60 funds that we were in contact with semi-regularly a year before the Series A. That was really key because we'd be able to build our reputation. They saw how we operated, saw how we executed, understood the problem, were excited about what we were doing, and so we were able to go in and run a bit more of a process. How did you form those relationships with them? They were, they were on your mailing list, but how did you initially meet them to put them on the mailing list? It was a combination of... Leveraging connections, so again, someone like Dylan Field, Peter Beck introduced us to a lot of tier one, you know, partners at tier one firms in the US. That was incredibly useful. And those relationships still exist today. Through those, they'd get excited about what we were doing, or some percentage of them would uh, introduce us to someone else and say, "Hey, I think you might be interested in this fund." You know, as we brought on new key employees like Harry, who had uh, kind of ran Airbnb in Australasia, he had a lot of connections. Um, so it was just a, it was just a kind of a slow backburner process, slowly building out the network over that, but over a year, eighteen months. There was some cold outreach. There were a lot of cases where I would reach out genuinely looking for advice, particularly like key partners at certain funds where they'd they'd looked at a hundred portfolio, you know, a hundred potential deals. They'd worked with five portfolio companies in similar spaces or, or, or marketplace network effect dynamic sort of spaces. And so I'd you know, just reach out, pack their brains. And, and What were the key differences between your experience with your pre-seed round versus your Series A? 
the funding environment end of last year when we closed three months ago was far more difficult. You know, raising end of last year, it took a lot longer. There were a lot more funds we talked to getting term sheets, far, far more due diligence, which is a good thing to be clear here, but they've the level of rigor from a business perspective that we needed going into this was an order of magnitude higher than than pre-seed product market fit, understanding what your projected growth looks like. How long did the Series A take to close? It probably took just on six months total. So we started having conversations in March and we closed in September, October. You touched on the uh, market conditions for capital raising, and both of these raises really were during the pandemic and the tightness in availability of funds generally for tech companies. And lots of startups at the moment are finding it challenging to raise capital, particularly in the last couple of years. What insight can you give to startup founders who are thinking about capital raising in the next little while, how to complete a successful raise in this environment? Good companies are still raising money. So I would be put off. In other words, if you're a really good company and you need capital, I would still be going out. I would give yourself more time. Anything under 12 months runway is a bad thing. I mean, I think if you're hitting 12 months, you probably want to be raising even even pre-revenue, even if things are not looking good. If there's any way to pivot towards slightly more service-orientated things, this environment is is the the right time to be considering those. You know, you, know, you never really want to do those as a startup. You want high margin products, services, but just the kind of the the grit and the willingness to just get revenue demonstrates a lot. I think in this environment, if you've got decent, you know, twelve months runway, managing that, like being being very prudent about that, understanding margins, even at a even an early stage where it doesn't even make sense, right? You barely understand your unit economics, you. You barely understand your customer. Just thinking about those things and trying to find ways of at least understanding them, I think, is is going to be important. But building relationships prior has helped enormously because at least funds that understand where you've where you're sitting, they understand how you operate, and you've got more time to sell them on the big picture. You know the vision that you have. Levi, I'd like to finish off with what I call the quick six, which is six rapid fire questions. Your favorite work from home lunch or snack? Fried chicken. <laughs> your favorite team building exercise for your remote teams? My, my favorite team building exercise overall is where we have to build a, a car from literally like sticks, glue, newspaper, just random bits. And then they have to... We have to get them from A to B without breaking a little egg. And so you, we had the company split into teams, build this little car from almost nothing. And then, yeah, whoever gets the furthest without breaking their egg wins. It's, it's, really, it's really fun. Very nice. What's a book that you have gifted recently or have gifted most? Probably The, the Life You Can Save by Peter Singer. Not, re- not related to business, but great book. Highly recommend it. What's a documentary or podcast that you've watched or listened to that you could recommend? 20 VC, Harry Stemmings is, is, is very good. Lex Friedman is, is, is great. Radio Lab is good. Uh, th- those are probably some of the more regular ones for me. What's your dream holiday destination? Southern New Zealand, down in the fjord somewhere, fa- fairly secluded uh, where I can, I can sit, read my book, probably in a spa. <laughs> if you could have dinner with any person in the world, alive or dead, who would it be and why? Right now, it would actually be Fred Slootman, the the Snowflake CEO, 
Awesome. Levi, this has been lots of fun. How do people find you? Easiest to find me on LinkedIn. I am very grateful for you, Levi. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Raise, a show that takes you deeper into founder stories about capital raising. We'll have all the contact details for Levi and Partly in our show notes. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Raise, be sure to subscribe or follow the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, share the love and leave us a five-star review. It really helps us spread these inspiring founder stories. I'm Mylin Dang, and we'll be back next episode with another deep dive into a founder's capital raising journey.